0: it begins to to lay a little bit of a foundation for our faith and and understanding uh, how people interact with God and what we can expect from Him. And so we looked at the first 15 chapters in the book of Genesis in the beginning of 2011, and and our plan was to return to it at this time in the year. And so that's what we're going to do for all of July and August in the first week of September. We're going to look at these narrative stories and again ask that question, what does this teach us about God? What are some of the, the principles that we learn about who God is and how he interacts with humanity? And so uh, as I mentioned earlier, our younger kids are in Sunday cinema, but uh, children who are going into grade four and up are with us in the main gathering time. So our demographics have expanded a bit. We have a little bit of a younger group with us. And so part of our teaching strategy for all of our summer teachers is going to have a, a few different activities so that we can engage people of all different ages. And so you can come to expect some more volunteer participation perhaps some artwork uh, perhaps uh, some other tools to make sure that the teaching uh, gets into your into your minds and into your hearts and in that momentum journal there's a, a number of activities so kids if you want to turn to that page you can certainly begin to work on that but whenever we start a book from any page other than the first page we usually have some sort of difficulty understanding what we can anticipate I mean unless it's a it's a cookbook or unless it's a coloring book I mean, if you start halfway through the book, you usually don't set yourself up to really understand what's going on. And the same thing's true with the Bible. When you look at a specific book and you don't start at the beginning, or even in the whole scope of the Bible, the 66 books, when we start at a different spot other than the beginning, we don't really get an entire framework for what has happened. And anyone who loves history knows you need to know what has happened so that you can better understand what will happen or what should happen. Happen. It's the same way with God's Word. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to summarize what we've learned uh, when we did those eight sermons back in January and February. So this is where I need my eight volunteers. I have four of them down here. Is that correct? How about you just come up? That way we can go through, we can lose all the dramatic uh, (laughs) appeal from our youngsters. So we've got John over here, Jeremy and Jordan, or Evan and Micah, and if my numbers are right, that's five. So I'm going to need three more. Peter Sands, why don't you come on up? Isaac. That's fine. I won't choose Isaac. We don't, we don't need any more drama, guys. So we've got six. Two more. There's a hand to Ali LaFleur. Come on up. And Norm Cutress, How about you, Norm? No? Is, is that a final no? Can I? Okay. Okay, that's a second no. I won't push Norm any further than he can go. Um, how about Ryan Schroeder? Ryan, can you come on up? Okay, Ryan, he has, a, he has a job in the public realm, so he's very used to this sort of thing. Okay, so we have our eight. I need you all to spread out, single file, shoulder to shoulder, if you can. Oh, that'll work. That'll work. Okay, and I'm going to turn around, and I'm going I'm to speak to you this way, and that way everyone can see you. All right, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to summarize the first eight messages that went through the first 15 chapters of the book of Genesis. It's gonna, now, these summaries aren't perfect, okay? I mean, some of these messages were incredibly complex. So forgive me if my summary is not completely true to what we spoke on or, or your understanding of these chapters. We're going to put them up on the screen. The very, the very first message that we looked at was Genesis 1. And so, Ryan, that's going to be you. And, the, and the, the thing that you need to remember, it's going to be right up there on the screen for you, is God creates, okay? God creates. That's the summary for, for chapter one. Ali, chapter two, we looked at the seventh day and the understanding that God rested. And the understanding that we came to was that when God rested, when he ceased from his work, he actually went on his ruling throne. And the, the cultural understanding, the way was, his dwelling place was there in the earth. And so the understanding was that God rules. So Ali. God rules. Jordan, chapter 3. Do you know what chapter 3 in the book of Genesis is all about? Okay. Well, well, this is why the summary is very helpful. This is when sin entered the picture, and we found out that Adam and Eve sinned, and we identified this. This is actually the problem. We talked about what's the problem in our world? Why do we always mess up? What, what's the, at the root of this? And Genesis 3 identifies that sin is the problem. So, Jordan, that's yours. Sin is the problem. On to your brother, Jeremy. This is chapter 4. It's about two brothers, not you and your brother, although I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have conversations that go this, this realm. Uh, one brother kills the other, right? Cain kills Abel. And we learn there, uh, our next slide there, we learn that sin destroys or sin kills is is one of the things we learned. Andrew uh, preached on that message and one of the other things that we learned about was what f- first fruits mean. What does it mean to give God your best? Uh, but we also see in the first part of that chapter the destructive nature of sin. On to Micah. Now we're on to Genesis chapter 6, 7 and 8, which is the flood story. And this is this is one of those things that man there's a lot there. It's hard to summarize, but I came up with a summary that God's judgment is delivered with sorrow. Pastor Brad talked about how God was not this vengeful God who just said, enough with people, let's just wipe them all out, I'm tired of them. Instead, the, the scriptures say very clearly that he, he hurt, he was sorrowful, he didn't want to do it, but he could not withstand the wickedness any longer. So God's judgment comes with sorrow. Okay? You, might, you can shed a couple of tears when you say that if, if you need to. On to Evan. This is now Genesis chapter 11, the story of the tower. And what we learned there was that, remember God's promise to the people, his instruction to the people was be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That was, that was the instruction. And instead the people said, let's build a tower. And the reason why they wanted to build a tower, do you guys remember? Was so they wouldn't be scattered. So they went to the exact opposite of what the Lord commanded them to fill the earth. And they said, we don't want to be scattered. And so God took action to scatter the people. And so we learned that his plan will not be thwarted. Do you like that word thwarted? Thwarted, yeah. The, the W is not silent in that one like it is in sword, but thwarted. You have to make sure you pronounce a W when you say that one. That's yours, Evan. Okay, Genesis chapter 12. Two more. Genesis chapter 12. Finally, we meet a, na- a man named Abram whose name is changed later on to Abraham. Uh, John, this is yours. And the summary there for, for Abraham is that redemption will come through Abram. That's how God's plan, he calls Abram, he gives him this promise, they end up making a covenant, which is our next summary. And we learn that the promise, redemption is gonna come through Abram and his descendants. And then finally, for you, Peter, uh, your summary statement from chapter 15 is that God's plan will not fail. And we know that because God enters a covenant relationship with Abraham, and we know that God is always faithful on his end of the covenant. So this is what we're gonna do, all right. We're going to start on my left, we're going to work to the right, and I want each of you just to simply repeat the summary statement, okay? It's very simple. So Ryan, we'll start with you all the way down the line. So hopefully we're, we're now up to speed. Uh, another way of, of reviewing this is simply to read the first 15 chapters of the book of Genesis. So that might be something that you want to do this week to, to get yourself up to speed and to remind yourselves of what happened here in the story. And one of the things I wanted to point out is, is we have these summary statements. We, we have a bit of a picture of what's going on here, but there's actually a subplot underneath these stories. It's like a story story within a story, and we see this through what's happened. Creation, God's ruling, but then sin enters the picture, and sin becomes this problem that undermines everything else that's going on. And this subplot is actually, uh, it appears for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, and it's a prophetic word by the Lord God when he uh, judges and he has a curse for the serpent. And what he says to the serpent, and the serpent is the one who deceived Adam and Eve into sinning. What he says to the serpent is he says that there will be strife or hostility between the woman and between the serpent. Between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, there's going to be hostility. And he says in the end of that prophecy that the serpent's going to strike the heel of the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, but that the woman will crush the serpent's head. And we, we get this subplot that actually goes throughout all of Scripture. We will see it re- referenced again in the book of Romans and then in the book of Revelation where we have uh, this sin problem represented by the serpent and, and for, forever in that reign there that's striking out, that's, that's trying to trip up humanity. But we have this promise of God that, that somehow through this line of humanity, there's going to be victory, there's going to be promise, but we feel that tension throughout it. there's these two lineages that we begin to track this story through. And for th- those of us who have read through Genesis 15 and we look through this summary, it's actually pretty easy to feel a bit discouraged by the time we get to to chapter 13, 14, 15, because so far the track record isn't great. Every person who's been a potential hero has failed. They have succumbed to sin. Adam does. Eve does. Their their son Cain, He, he he's told by God, sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. And he does not. And he falls into sin. He murders his son. We see Noah. Noah, who's the only righteous person left, and and God uses Noah and and starts a new generation of people, but then he falls into sin shortly after the flood, and it just continues to happen on and on and on, and then we meet Abram. And I think it's easy to think, well, what's Abram going to do? Isn't he going to mess up? How is God's plan, how is his promise and his covenant going to be fulfilled through Abram? And the question that we're kind of left with is, who's going to stop this trend? Who's going to stop this sin problem? How is God's plan going to succeed? Can a good person right the ship? Abraham is is described as such a person. Is he going to be able to do this? And this is still a question that many of us ask ourselves too in different scenarios. Can a good person make a difference? What changes need to be made in our world in in order for this sin problem to be averted, in order for righteous living to be? to be known once again. Can a righteous person do any good? Well, the story that I want to look at in Genesis, it it responds to this question just a bit. And this story is a very, very well-known story. Uh, Even if, if you didn't grow up in church, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian and you're here as a visitor today, my guess is that simply as a member of our North American society, you're familiar with this story, especially the next story that this chapter leads into. And it's the story of Abraham negotiating with God over this, over the the plan or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are well-known uh, cities of antiquity, and there's lots of speculation for what they. What the citizens participated in and what their wicked actions were. And we have a, a lot of those answers here in the scriptures. And to catch up to speed with what's happening, we're in Genesis chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to, to that text. You can kind of look for yourself with what has happened and what will happen. And we'll put those texts up on the screen in, in just a minute or two. But God has appeared to Abraham and Sarah. He's actually appeared in the form of three men. And they, they visit. Abraham, and Abraham and Sarah, they're good hosts. They welcome into their home. They feed them. They shelter them from the heat of the day. And they are told that even in their old age, this promise that God has made them, even in their old age, at this time next year, Sarah is going to give birth to a son. And, and that's how the first section of chapter 18 finishes with this promise. And then what happens in verse 16 is the men, and, and this this is... Uh, the, the figure of God represented in this story, got up from their meal and they looked out towards Sodom. And as they left, Abraham, being the good host that he was, he went out with them to send them on their way. So you look at Near Eastern culture, hospitality was extremely important. And, and so Abraham has hosted the Lord there for a meal in, in human form. And as they get up to leave, being the good host that he is, he, he leads them out of his tent and presumably on their way, and that would have been the custom in their day. But something happens, and this leads into our story. Uh, this is going to be uh, verse 17. Verse 17. And this is a very strange thing. I think this is only one of the only times it happens in the Scripture. It might be the only time. But God actually has His own dramatic monologue. It's almost like Shakespeare. You know, you ever been to, to watch Bart on the beach? or or another Shakespeare presentation and you have a character who kind of goes off to the side of the stage and they address the audience and they talk to the audience and everyone else is oblivious to what's going on and they usually kind of say, this is what's on my mind, here's what's happening. And as the audience, you get an idea of, oh, okay, here's what I can anticipate happening. This is how this person's feeling or thinking. Uh, for some of our, our younger people, maybe you're more familiar with Saved by the Bell instead of with Shakespeare. Do you guys remember Zach Morris would do this in his episodes? He would stop midway and he'd say, "Time out!" You remember how lame that was? He'd say, "Time out!" and then everyone would freeze, and then he'd look at the camera and say, "What's going on? Like Slater's trying to steal my girlfriend. What should I do?" And, he, and then <laughs> through through this this interaction with the camera, he'd come to some sort of decision. Right? He'd come to some sort of decision, and then you know he'd. He'd take, a, he'd take a bite out of someone's burger and put it back in their hand, and then boom, action, time in, and then everything went back to normal. It's, it's kind of similar to what God does here. Abraham doesn't know what's going on, and it's like God thinks out loud. And this is what he says. Verse 17, "Should I hide my plan from Abraham?" the Lord asked. For Abraham will certainly become a great and holy nation, or a great and mighty nation." and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Okay, now pay attention. This is very important how God describes Abraham and his family. And just like character monologues are so important to understanding what happens in the story, this is going to be the key point to understanding this story. We're going to come back to this in just a minute, but we'll we'll finish out what he says. Verse 19. So he's already said, Abraham's going to be a great and mighty nation. Everyone's going to be blessed through him. And then he says, I've singled them out, so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. Now, God doesn't answer his own question. We don't hear in this monologue where he says, should I, should I hide my plan from Abraham? And then he says, no, no, I shouldn't hide my plan from Abraham. I'll tell him exactly what I'm going to do. Which is interesting because somehow God's convinced himself that he should reveal what he's about to do to Abraham. And it has to do with what Abraham's called to do and what his function to the world is. But we're going to keep going. We'll, We'll jump back there. Verse 20. So the Lord turns to Abraham. The Lord tells Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. So the thing that gets God's attention is this great outcry. There's an outcry that God hears, and, and this is what is now leading God to take action. Now, this isn't the first time that we've heard uh, some sort of noise or cry or weep come up to God in the scriptures. We actually hear it in Genesis chapter 4 in the story of Cain and Abel. What happens there? Cain kills his brother Abel, and when God uh, addresses the brother and says, what have you done? He basically says, the, the blood of your brother has cried out to me. And so we get this picture of of almost like this noise, this volume being raised up to the heavens and God hearing it and, and being so overwhelmed with this evil and this wickedness and this outrage that he immediately takes action. We see it later on in the biblical story with the Egyptians and the Israelites. The Israelites in Exodus chapter three, they're in bondage, they're in slavery, and they cry out the, the scripture says that the Lord hears their groaning, and so he takes action. And here in this story, uh, we hear that there's a great outcry against these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into all the details of, well, what, what would have started this outcry? What sort of activities and wickedness were they involved in? And, and, and I mean, that, that could be a study and a message in and of itself. But we do have some some texts in in the scripture, the next chapter being one of them, and we see it later on in in, uh, some of the the prophets and and in the gospels as well, as to what these people were involved in that created such a stir. We know that they were inhospitable people. They did not follow the cultures of their days of of being welcoming and inviting and, and serving those who came inside their cities. We also know there was sexual immorality. That's very clear from the next story that we see in other passages that, that, that some of their practices were incredibly wicked. We know historically that some of the pagan worship that they did involved sacrificing children. And, and some of the things that they did to their innocent people were just incredibly horrendous. And all of this has, has created this, this volume, this cry out to God. And God says that he's going to come down and he's going to inspect to see what is going on. One of the things that's interesting in this story is we don't see Abraham or his nephew Lot in the next story who lives in Sodom, we don't see either one of them questioning God's actions. There isn't really a phrase where they say, well, you know what, Um, are they really that wicked? Maybe they shouldn't be judged. We're going to get into what Abraham talks to, to God about in just a minute, but we actually don't see anyone in scripture kind of saying, well, maybe that was an unjustified thought there. There seems to be general knowledge amongst the readers too, that this was a very wicked place and that judgment needed to happen. An author by the name of John Walton, who writes an excellent commentary on the book of Genesis, who um, I'm sure we'll be mentioning throughout the summer, he says this. He says, the last thing anyone in the reading audience would have, would, would be expected to do would be to come to the defense of Sodom or try to make excuses for their behavior. Their sin is so blatant, their sin is so flagrant, that the Lord God has heard the cries from his throne in heaven, and he is ready to take action. And the point is is not that God hears some things and he doesn't hear other things. The point is that the cry is so loud that it compels him to take action right away. And this is what we see in verse 21, our very next verse. The Lord God says, I'm going to go down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. Now we can't help but notice in this verse and in the previous verse that there's some suggestions here with what God sees, what God hears, and what God knows that maybe there's a limit to his power. Maybe he doesn't quite know what's going on. Maybe he doesn't hear quite so well as we think God does. And for some of us, we might have to think, wait a second, um, what's going on here with the nature of God? Uh, Is he not omnipotent? Is he not uh, omnipresent? Is he not all-powerful? I mean, uh, God needs to check these things out. Well, what's important to understand in the Bible, it happens a lot in the Old Testament, is that there's times when the author will use a phrase called anthropomorphism. Some of you probably are familiar with this term, especially people knowledgeable in... In literature. Kids, I know that this is summer break, but here's one word that you guys might want to write down and, and think about later on. Anthropomorphism, it's a, it's a Greek word. Anthro means uh, human, anthrops, I suppose, and morph is form. So basically it means human form. And what this is, is this is when we as humans give human characteristics to non-human things. And we do it all the time. Non-human characteristics, or excuse me, human characteristics to non-human things. And we do that because we're human. We understand what humanity is all about. And so in order to better understand something or better describe something, we use human terminology. Now, I've got a few examples of this. One is how many pet owners do we have here this morning? Okay, a number of you and a number that are not raising your hands as well. Okay, I myself am not a huge fan of pets. Nothing against your pets, but I, I just... You know, I prefer humans, I guess is what I, what I would say. But, but pets, how many times have you seen individuals, maybe even yourself, treat a pet as if it's a human? Have you guys ever seen someone refer to their cat or their dog and say, don't worry, your mommy's here for you? <laughs> Has ever, ever seen that? Dress up the, the, the dog or the cat or some other animal in a sweater or some sort of outfit. Sympathize with a feeling of the pet. This this is all anthropomorphism, okay? You are not that animal's mother or father. That's not true. It's just... just, That's just... (laughs) It's anthropomorphism. It's a great example of it. It happens in movies all the time. Obviously, Disney movies, right? I mean, that's... Obviously, animals can't talk. But, I mean, we we have these relationships and these human attributes that are given to non-human things. Uh, We have animals, we have toys, we have vegetables that are able to interact with one another. They have feelings, they have fears, they have ambitions. In the case of the vegetables, they have some very advanced theological views at times. I mean, this is all anthropomorphism. And we see it in nature too, right? We, we see that we name hurricanes, we give hurricanes an identity. We name different weather systems, El Nino, La Nina, all of that stuff. Um, my favorite example of nature comes from an episode of Seinfeld. So for those of you who are friends of, or are big fans of Seinfeld will probably remember this. George Costanza, he has this, this dream of being a marine biologist. And in this one episode, he lies to his girlfriend and says that he's a marine biologist. And sure enough, they happen to be walking by the beach and they find a beached whale. And so he then is, has to go take action as a so-called marine biologist. And so after, after this scene happens, he then is, he's talking with the rest of the crew around the, the coffee shop where they're always at, and, and he tells the story. And do you remember how he tells the story? He says, the sea was angry that day, my friends, like an old man trying to return soup at a deli. Well, the sea wasn't angry, right? The sea is just the sea. The sea doesn't have feeling. But anthropomorphism, we give human characteristics to non human human things. And this is what we have here in the scripture. We have the, the author here giving human attributes to God who is beyond human understanding. And the important thing that we see here is is how God uses how God is describing this human terminology to figure out justice. God doesn't just see what's happening and make a decision. No, the author says God wants to gum down. He wants to inspect closely what is happening. God is listening very carefully. And so we get for this, uh, one of the first times this understanding of how careful God is in administering justice. Just like you and I, when we're reading something very carefully, we will hold it very close to us and, and we'll focus on it so clearly. Just like we listen so Carefully to something that we're paying attention to, so too the Lord God says, I'm going to inspect these cities carefully. I want to see what is happening. But remember, there's a stakeholder in this story, and this is where the story gets very, very interesting. And God has chosen to include him in the conversation. Now I've chosen to use the the, the sermon title of the negotiator or the negotiation for our message. And that's basically, uh, it's based upon most of our understanding of this text, most of our our view of of what's happening. We have Abraham, as we're about to see, and God, and they kinda debate, well, should the city be destroyed or should it not be destroyed? But I I think as we're about to see, the conversation looks a bit different. And I want to uh, reveal our first painting of the summer series, our first canvas. This is a, a painting done by two grade two students and Roz Kerr's classroom, they did a great job. Thanks, Roz, for loaning your students out for us for that time. And this, this painting depicts this scene where we have Abraham on his knees pleading to God for Sodom and Gomorrah. And the question is, what's, God, or what's Abraham really concerned about here? What is he wanting God to be convinced of? well, let's listen to what happens. We're going to read through the rest of the story. Uh, This is verse 23. Verse 23 in Genesis 18. God has already said that he's going to inspect the city. And, uh, And then in verse 23, Abraham approached God and he said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing destroying the righteous along with the wicked? Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Bold words from Abraham, but he's correct, right? He knows that God is just, and he says, wait a second, there's righteous people down there. You can't, you can't sweep the city away. And the, and the clause, his rationale is this. Then you're treating both the righteous people and the wicked people exactly the same. That's not just, right? You're, you're just. Make sure you don't do that, Lord. And this is what God says back to him. Verse 26. If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. So Abraham saying, Lord, I'm being as respectful as I can. Accept my humility. I'm just going to continue the conversation here. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of 5? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. So Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 40. Please don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find 30. Abraham said, since I've dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. What if there's only 20? The Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. You guys are beginning to sense a pattern developing here, right? Verse 32, finally, Abraham said, Lord, don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. And when the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. Now I want to stop here and return to what Abraham says first, because this is the key to understanding this story. It's easy to come to this conclusion that if it were not for Abraham, if Abraham had not gotten into this debate with God, If God had not first welcomed Abraham into this conversation, then the righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah would have been completely wiped away. Certainly, the text seems to speak to that to some degree. And it might just lead us to some sort of application from this scenario that says, remind God of the injustices of our world. Or if if you plead with God long enough and earnestly enough, maybe you can change his mind. I'm not saying that that these applications are necessarily wrong, but I will suggest that I don't know if that's really the point of the story that we're reading here. Let's look back at the logic of Abraham. And again, I wanna credit John Walton for his excellent commentary on this book. Abraham's basically saying that if the two cities are destroyed, if the two cities are destroyed, then this is an act of injustice. And the reason is, is because the wicked people and the righteous people are going to be treated exactly the same. But flip this argument around what if the cities are spared? Well, wouldn't that also be an act of injustice? Because now everyone lives, and what happens? The righteous and the wicked are treated exactly the same, right? Either scenario, city is spared, city is destroyed, the righteous and the wicked are treated exactly the same. So really, it doesn't make sense that this is what Abraham would be asking because he knows that the Lord is just, and he's just asked the Lord, you can't do this. You can't treat the, the wicked and the righteous people the same. So the question is, what is Abraham really asking for? What is he pleading with God about in this story? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the key is this, this monologue, this... Uh, understanding that we get as the readers of this text of what's going on in, in God's mind and how He views Abraham, and so I want to go back to that passage once again that we started with, where Abraham, or excuse me, where God kind of has this ger- dramatic monologue about what is going to happen. And remember how He talks about Abraham. He says Abraham's going to be a great and mighty nation. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him, and he's been singled out. All the nations will be blessed. Through him. Well, Abraham's living in a foreign land. In some ways, he's very much a righteous minority. He's an alien, a resident alien, living in a place with many people around him, many who are extremely wicked. And this promise of God is that through Abraham, all these people will be blessed, all the people of the earth certainly starting through Abraham's lifetime, but through his descendants, this is the mode of redemption that God is choosing to use here in his plan. And as we reviewed earlier, God's plan will not be thwarted. God's plan will be successful. And yet Abraham shows in this story that he is willing to interact with God in this conversation over his justice And we get a a picture finally of Abraham starting to understand what his role is, what God is calling him to as a people that is going to bless all the nations around them. John Walton, again, he, he says this so well when he says, their presence as a righteous minority in a wicked world will still God's hand of destruction. But the question is not simply, is Abraham appealing so that this city will either be destroyed or acquitted? Based on what we're reading in the story, the better suggestion of Abraham seems to be, Lord, will you do this now or will you do this later? The question actually seems to be one of timing. And the reason is, is because as a, a resident alien, as someone who is going to give blessing to the rest of the world, there's this assumption, there's this idea from God that this is what Abraham and his people should do, and there's this understanding, internally of Abraham himself, that the righteous must have an impact on the wicked. That's how this is going to happen. Otherwise, well, what good is Abraham and his family? If there are to be a blessing to all the nations, how else can it happen? It has to happen through him. They must have some sort of impact on the people around them. And so we get this understanding that it's almost like Abraham is appealing to God and saying, hold on a second. You can't can't treat the righteous and the wicked the same. But have you given the righteous enough time to have an impact? Have you given the wicked enough time to respond Can you you extend the timeline just a little bit longer, Lord? Can you wait a bit longer? Can you wait for the righteous people to understand their mission, to be a godly influence on the people around them? This seems to be what Abraham is concerned with. Can you simply delay your judgment for the sake of the righteous? See, Abraham understands his calling in this passage. And as people who ask the question, well, can a good person have any impact? We, we get a little bit of encouragement here because Abraham seems to finally understand his mission, what he's supposed to do, to be a blessing to all the people around him. And, and in this sense, he's asking for more time. And this is really the same message that extends into the next chapter. Like his uncle, Lot is a righteous foreigner living in a wicked land, and he too is attempting to to have an impact. But the sad part of the story that we see in Genesis 19 is that the people of Sodom prove that they are beyond reform. We see that pretty clearly in the story. Even within Lot's own family, they are beyond help. It seems that no amount of time is going to correct their ways. Lot is married with, with two daughters. We see in that next story that when he warns his family members that they need to flee because God is going to judge the city, his son-in-laws think that he's just jesting, he's just joking. They don't take him seriously. His own wife is lost because as they're fleeing, she feels compelled to turn back and return. And we get this understanding from God's judgment that is just. That even though Abraham says, well, if, if, if there's enough righteous people there, Lord, maybe, maybe you can give them more time. Maybe they'll turn around. Abraham started with 50, went all the way down to 10. We find out that not even five were righteous, and the city of Sodom was beyond reform. We learn a lot of things from this story, but the clearest thing that we learn, the clearest thing that we come away with is the understanding is that God has a plan for the righteous to have an impact on those around them. The righteous have to have an impact on those around them. This is how God's plan of redemption will flow through Abraham and his descendants. And this is the very idea that's at the core of Abraham's calling. If every nation is going to be blessed, it has to happen through this family, through them having an impact on the neighbors around them. If they don't, their neighbors won't be blessed. So what does this mean for us? I mean, Abraham and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, these people and these cities haven't existed for thousands of years. So what sort of message does this have for us from a story in Genesis that that is timeless almost because it is so, so old? Well, the story gives us a picture of the strategy that God wants to use to bring about redemption. It starts with Abraham. We learn about his call in in chapter 12 and his covenantal promise. And we understand that it's through Abraham and his descendants that everyone will be blessed. And this is a strategy that is true not only for Abraham and his family, but it extends throughout the scripture. And it's the same calling for the church. It extends to the church. That as followers of Christ, each and every individual has a responsibility to extend the grace of God to those people around us. We are to be ambassadors of Christ. We are to show the love of Jesus Christ to those people around us. That is how everyone will be blessed. That is how people will come to know the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's plan for the church. This is God's plan and mission for you. In the book of uh, 1 Peter in the New Testament, Peter says this, he reminds his audience of this. You're a chosen people. You are royal priests. You're a holy nation. You're God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And then he quotes this from the prophet Hosea. Once you had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Now listen to this real carefully. Listen how similar this is to what we see in this story and calling of Abraham. Verse 11. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. That's Peter's words in the New Testament. It's very similar to God's words to Abraham and and Abraham's understanding of this situation of saying, as a resident alien here, my job is to bless those around us. My job is to make sure that all the people around me are blessed, that they have a chance, that I use my relationship, I, I steward that wisely to extend the grace of God. Because you and I are not citizens. We're not citizens of Canada. We're not citizens of any other country. As followers of Christ, we're citizens of heaven. And that makes us resident aliens. That makes us people who are here temporarily. We've been purchased with a price, commissioned with a purpose, and we're here to have an impact on the people around us. So I ask you today, what difference are you making? Are you having an impact on the people around you? You've been entrusted with different relationships in your family, in your workplace, at school, the neighbors who are on either side of you or above you. What sort of impact are you having? At your workplace, do your coworkers, do they, are they excited to interact with you? Do they look at your life and think, wow, that's something that I would like to see. Do they recognize that you are an agent of God's grace? Would they describe your interactions with you as being ones full of grace and love? What about in your living situation, in your townhouse complex, or in your home? The neighbor's excited to see you. Do they ask you for advice and, and wisdom on situations? Do they avoid you because they've come to know that you are not someone who responds in grace? What difference are you currently making? If God were to have a conversation with you, just like he did with Abraham, what would your response be? If he were to say, my time is up, this individual, I know well their deeds better than you do, their time has come. It's time for their judgment. Would you be quick to appeal to them and say, no, 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 Lord, give me more time. Give me more time. I can have an impact on them. I need more time. Seeds have been sown discipleship is growing. Give me more time. Would you have that ambition to appeal to God for more time? We've been placed in a foreign land and we're here for a reason. So what are we going to do about it? Well, the book of Genesis shows us that one man can make a difference when they choose to follow God's commandments. They don't make a difference because of their own greatness. They make a difference because they rely upon the greatness of God. And no amount of willpower by any righteous person can accomplish anything if they do not rely upon the greatness of God. The music team is going to come up. They're going to lead us through a song. and, And I would ask that while they lead you through this song, you search your heart and you pray to God and you ask him, who's just one person? I mean, Abraham was appealing for an entire city. Lot was there with a whole bunch of neighbors and, and you and I have been entrusted with many, many people. Who's just one? One person that God's gonna lay on your heart. A neighbor, a family member, a co-worker. Who's one person that you can have an impact on? Pray for that individual. Pray for yourself that that you would recognize the promptings of God's Spirit and respond with grace and love to that individual. How are you making a difference?